Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For most of the stressful situations in our lives, it's our perception of a situation more than the situation itself. But turn that around. And what about its opposite? Physiologically, the opposite of stress is kindness. It's how kindness feels. It's like some psychologists refer to it as elevation. You, kindness feels like an elevated state. You help someone, it feels satisfying and it feels nice. If you observe an act of kindness, sometimes you feel moved or inspired. But globally, those are referred to similarly as elevation. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast, the show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. My name is Dr. Rupi. I'm a medical doctor. I also study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me on this podcast where we explore multiple determinants of what allows you to live your best life. And remember, you can sign up to thedoctorskitchen.com for the newsletter where we give weekly recipes plus tips and hacks on how to improve your lifestyle today. My guest today is David Hamilton, PhD. He is a writer, columnist, speaker, and author of 10 books covering the science of kindness, self-esteem, and the mind-body connection. He is pretty much the kindness czar and has been featured on Channel 4 Sunday Brunch Live in the UK and CBS Sunday Morning in the US. And in today's podcast, we talk broadly about the subjects of kindness, self-esteem, and mind-body medicine, as well as his personal journey from organic chemist at a well-known pharmaceutical company to now having the courage and confidence to preach what he practices. We have a really down-to-earth, authentic conversation. Perhaps the second part of the conversation is is my favorite because we really dive into what he's thinking about doing next and how that's conjuring up a bit of nervous energy, um, which hopefully will be converted into something uh, positive. But earlier on, we talk about the placebo effect, uh, how to cultivate inner self-confidence and esteem, manifesting physical changes in the body with brain visualization and mental exercises, something that I probably would have scoffed at about five or six years ago. But now I'm really understanding a lot more about the research and the science behind 
We talk about the antidote to stress hormones and the kindness hormone, oxytocin, the virality of kindness, the difference between toxic positivity and actually empathizing uh, when in a, a bad situation, as well as kindness and positivity as a muscle that needs to be worked out. You can find my guest at www.drdavidhamilton.com and also check out the links, all of which are on the show notes, thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast. And check out some of the uh, visuals that we put on social media as well, some little sound bites that I think really resonated with myself. But for now, it's a bit of a long podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And I will sum up some of the, the most impactful tips that david gave me that i'm personally going to be putting into practice at the end of the show i'm really excited to have this conversation with you uh, david because this is a subject uh, i don't think i've typically paid enough attention to uh, over the years my primary focus um has obviously been medicine um that i've been practicing for the last 10 years um coupled with nutrition and, and lifestyle um and the sort of the clinical research behind the ingredients and recipes and and how that pertains to physiological changes in the body but i was really interested to hear about a your background in organic chemistry and pharmaceuticals initially and how you've transitioned the whole way along to what you practice now which is all about kindness self-love and gratitude um and actually to be fair to myself i did practice well i still practice gratitude and i have done for a number of years um where i, I share three things i'm grateful for every single day for i think it was almost three years um on social media but I, i'd love to to for you to take us on that journey of of how you you got to what you're doing right now uh, well, I, at the university, I did a chemistry specialised in biological medicinal chemistry in my my my, my honours year, uh, and then I did my PhD was organic chemistry, and then I went to work with AstraZeneca, and uh, I, I was an organic chemist there, and but, but what intrigued me, I, I was working really in drug development, so I had a very broad role, you know, very that, that spanned, it, it was in, in some ways a kind of chemistry stroke communication role. It was a new type of role that they'd created in AstraZeneca the previous year to I, I joined that, that spanned a number of different areas uh, and it, it needed organic chemists who could speak the language of the of people doing hard lab chemistry, but it could also speak the language of people developing the medicines and, and really span the area with the idea being to speed up the, the rate that things are done. So that, that job exposed me to clinical trial data that I maybe wouldn't have seen in a slightly different role. And I found that fascinating because as well as, I loved the science, I loved, you know, the, the building of the drugs and I loved the, the, mm. the whole, you know, the formulation side. I loved all of that kind of stuff and the analytical side of it. But once I saw the results of the clinical trials, that just, you know, the, plus, the, the idea that, of the placebo effect that people could be improving because they believe that this sugar pill, i.e. the placebo, the sugar pill, was going to help them. And so people would show some improvement. And I think the roots of my fascination with that was because my mum, when I was young, had postnatal depression or postpartum depression. After my youngest sister was born, 
And so my youngest sister was born in the mid 70s. And I remember I just, my mum had been ill on and off, but as a child, you don't know why. You know, my mum didn't mm. really tell us too much about it. Obviously, she's trying to protect us. Four, there was four children, really. And I remember I was, in, I, I knew my mum was sick and I wanted to help her. And the, the English teacher had taken us to the library when we had just started high school. And I was 11 years old. And this is going to sound really corny, but a book fell off the shelf. Now, I might have bumped it with my bag or something, but it, it's called The Magic Power of Your Mind by a, wow. a gentleman called okay. Walter Germain. And I had this instinct, uh -huh. I bet that can help my mum. And so I just put it in my bag and took it. I didn't know you're supposed to join a library, you know, and get a wee <laughs> yellow card. First time I'd been in one. So I put it in my bag. I thought, oh, that's great. I'll borrow that. And, uh, and you know, my mum, it, it, we've still got it, by the way. <laughs> uh, really? Right. I forgot to take it back because it was, it was so... My mum devoured it. it. You know, it didn't cure depression, of course. But what mm, it did mm. is it taught her strategies like... Met what we now call meditation, mindfulness and gratitude. And, and it taught her things like that, that could help her to navigate, navigate a course through some of the difficult times. And it certainly made an improvement for mum. So one of the things she did was affirmations and she used to pump her fist and go, it's all in the mind, mind over matter, I can do it, kind of thing. And that was an energising body language kind of thing that she did. And so wind the clock forward, and my mum and I had all these conversations about the mind while I was growing up as a teenager, then in my early 20s. So wind the clock forward, here I am working with AstraZeneca, and I'm looking at clinical trial data, and all my friends and colleagues are so excited that this cardiovascular drug, I, I worked mostly cardiovascular, a little bit of cancer as well, and they're looking at this cardiovascular blood pressure lowering uh, drug, and they're thinking, wow, look how great it is, and all I can see is how many people had improved in the placebo. And I wanted to know why. <laughs> so I, in my spare time, I began to research and investigate what is that bridge between your thinking, your believing, and your feeling, and the brain and the body. And, and so I, I found so much information on that, that that became, I, I knew in my heart, this is what I want to do. I want to educate people on how mind and emotions can actually not just have a, a detrimental effect in terms of stress, but how they could have a positive effect if we could harness different mental and emotional states. So I decided after four years that this is what it's so it was such a pull in me that this is what I believe I wanted to do. I wanted to teach and I wanted to write and and so I just decided one day to leave the job and and, and dive into what I, I do now. I mean that's incredible because you're giving up quite an incredible job at one of the world's biggest pharma companies where you're a prized asset and you're sort of I mean, it's really entrepreneurial because you're literally building your own path I mean where did you start um on on, on that like newfound journey uh, by taking a big dive down the way <laughs> <laughs> it was one of these instances that it seemed like a good idea at the time yeah <laughs> But I had absolutely no idea how to do it. I, just, you know, I remember I had to work, because of the, the the level of my job, I had to work three months notice period uh, as uh -huh. a kind of handover of projects and stuff. And I, I was all pumped up initially. I remember about six weeks into it, I woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> I'm leaving a really well-paid job, fantastic career prospects, and I'm going to write 
I failed my English at school. What am I doing? And I'm going to be a public speaker. Speaking in front of people frightens the life out of me. What am I doing? <laughs> you know, and, and what I really, what I found difficult, I was completely broke within a year. Uh, partly because I had no idea how to start this new career. I didn't know how. Mm. I'd gone from the safety of high school right into university. I literally finished my degree and was hired by one of the, the really well-known professors in the department to work the summer. And I literally finished mm. with him on a Friday working a summer job, a research job, and then started my PhD on the Monday. I finished my PhD three years later on a Friday, started work with AstraZeneca <laughs> the following Wednesday. I'd never been in the world. I didn't know what it was like <laughs> to actually... Yeah. You know, I've always, if I worked at AstraZeneca, I need something done. I go to Human Resources and it's sorted for mm. me. Now, mm. you know, how do you book a room to do a talk and how do you advertise it? So nobody came to my events. <laughs> and <laughs> good. Plus, actually, I so lacked confidence. I, I, I always knew that I'd struggled with confidence, which is actually rooted in, in low self-esteem that I struggled with for, for years. But I didn't realise how chronic it was until I actually mm. had to go out in the world and do things for myself. And, and, and so I struggled with advertising myself and putting myself out there, which contributed to, the fact, contributed to the reality of the fact that within a year I was absolutely broke. I mean, literally. Wow. Uh, and then I, I moved sideways. A friends, some friends and I set up an international relief charity called Spirit Aid Foundation and, and I ran that as director for a couple of years and I think that was my growing up period where mm. I, I, I had to but now I had the support of of a group of friends who were running this charity and we had to you know really borrow and beg and all that to because we had no money initially to start and so that period of growing up for me was was worth the support rather than being on my own I was with the support of friends making my way in the world all in a similar kind of position. And, and that is, I, I think I needed that kind of two-year period, really. That That's amazing. I mean, like, it must have been such a strong will and pull for you to, to leave that position and then grow up in the world. And you know, there's so many parallels between what you just talked about and medicine, because when you start as a, as a young, naive 18-year-old who just wants to save lives and save the world, you are you enter into this sort of um, uh, fraternity, if you like, where you are mollycoddled all the way up to junior doctor level, and then you go up the ranks, and it's very clear the path ahead of you. And to step outside of that, mm. whether it be you know a, a, a different specialty, whether it be nutrition, whether it be leaving the the um, specialty altogether, or the, the the industry altogether, you know it's very very hard to do, and you've actually got to have a lot of confidence and self belief. Mm. And it's quite interesting to note that you you struggle with self esteem because you do, you don't appear to be someone who who lacks self esteem. I, I wonder if we could double click on that. Yeah, well, actually, th that's often the case with a lot of people who struggle with self esteem. You can't really tell. You know, mm. I think, you know, I wrote a book on this a few years ago because I knew I needed to work on it myself. It was beginning to have really, really harmful consequences in a number of areas of my life. And and one of the things that I discovered early on in that is there's two types of self-esteem and we often get it back to front. There's external self-esteem, which is where you derive your sense of worthiness and value, if you will, from successes and achievements in life and, and maybe people having positive perceptions and opinions of you. 
Uh, and that can feel good. Uh, and as long as you're extracting that from the outside world all the time, then you can appear outwardly, outwardly quite happy. But mm. that's not really healthy. Uh, as they say in Scotland, your coat is in a shaky nail, meaning, <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. you know, all it takes is for a couple of things to go wrong, a couple of bad reviews, change in perception, it's devastating. So what I, the other type of self-esteem, which is more like what you might call self-love, um, stroke self-compassion, is an inner sense of your own worthiness and value. And that inner sense is not dependent upon successes and achievements and people liking you and having good opinions and perceptions and having nice reviews. It doesn't mean that you don't want those things. Of course, that's human nature. You, you naturally want to achieve and interact and have that. But it just means that your sense of worthiness deep in your heart and your soul, if you will, is not rested upon those things. So if something in the external world changes, yes, it can sting a little bit, but you've got this inner resilience, like a deep sense of worthiness and support that knows that, you know, no matter what, I'm still here. I've got this. Mm. It's like a an inner resource that almost kind of buffers some of the, the winds and the storms from the outside world if they emerge uh, in your life. And I swiftly realized that I had a, a fair bit of the former, the, the external self-esteem that made me seem to people outwardly happy. But on the inside, I struggled a lot of the time because I had almost zero of the inner and stuff. Mm. And so, so oftentimes in my quiet moments, I would be really struggling. And then I, I was like a yo-yo kind of thing. Like sometimes I'd be really happy to be in certain places, but other times I was trying to avoid places and people because I, you know, I got this wee resurgence of the lack of inner sense of worthiness and value. And I found myself pulling away from situations and people. And so I, I would have this kind of little wave motion where sometimes I was there and sometimes I was not, but nobody notices mm. when you're not kind of thing. But it, yeah. was, it was really interfering a lot in my sense of happiness and you know life itself and almost every area of my life. And so I had to deal with it, really. It, this is quite interesting because it's almost like a parallel with um, uh, celebrities or those in the in the public eye because they they constantly have to be on they constantly have to demonstrate whatever that persona yeah. is whether it's them being loud or or funny comedians are perhaps some of the worst of it but it's almost like we all need to build up this inner sense of worthiness because in a sense social media has made us all celebrities. Yeah. Every single one of us. We all have photos of mm. us in digital media. We are all validated or criticized via comments and likes and engagements. And and building up that self-confidence has never been so important. And mm. I, I wonder if there are um some 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 ways in which you can share that that perhaps listeners could mm. could utilize to build up that because I mean I, I'm certainly lacking in those myself not not to turn this into a psychotherapy session but <laughs> I think having that that, that rock solid uh, inner foundation uh, is is really important for everyone and, and particularly right now yeah and actually I, I found that most people I know do struggle with that inner side of themselves and and I think because maybe we don't realize the importance of the inner sense of worthiness and value because I think the way life is, you know, life and achievements and, and social media and stuff is presented to us, we, we somehow assume that it's the external stuff that matters the most. Uh, and mm. so it's, it's a big shift. But, you know, one of the simplest and most powerful tools I ever learned 
was the 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 bi-directional relation was based on this bi-directional relationship between uh, your how you feel and how that feeling is expressed on your physical body in other words how you hold mm -hmm. and move your body and when i say bi-directional what i mean is that it goes both ways in other words mm. if you feel happy you naturally smile now you don't smile because you're meant because you say oh, I, you know, I feel really happy what what is that i do with my face again <laughs> oh yeah I better pull my, my, my zygomaticus major muscle into a smile. You don't remember to. It's a reflex reaction uh, mm. because uh, the, the positive emotional centers of the brain are connected in some ways to these smile muscles, this one here, and the one at the side of the eyes, the orbicularis mm. oculi. I just like saying the name. It sounds really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Not because anyone oculi. needs to know it. I just, I'm indulging <laughs> the fact I love the sound orbicularis oculi. Sounds like a character in a, in a novel. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like a spaceman, a new Disney movie yeah, or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but similarly, if you feel stressed, again, you don't remember to to tense your face and this corrugator super silly muscle. <laughs> you don't remember to do that, and you don't remember to tighten your jaw and remember to, you know, hunch your shoulders. Again, these things are reflex reactions because the the outward expression on on your muscles is connected to the circuitry of the brain that's processing these negative emotional states. You could think of it, a good analogy might be like a puppet on a string. So when you feel a certain way, it's like a puppet master pulls the appropriate muscles in that way. Mm. But this is where bi-directional comes in. Because if you recognize that that happens, then you can adjust your posture, your muscles, your facial expressions, your breathing even, your spine you know, how you hold and move your body. And that turns the puppet master around. And now it's your body that's controlling how you feel. And it's an ex such exceptionally powerful tool. I first got switched onto it when a friend sent me, when I was writing the book on, on, on self-love, a friend sent me research on what's now called the Harvard Power Pose. And it was a professor called Amy Cuddy who had done this little experiment when she got people to stand like Wonder Woman or, or Superman for just mm. two minutes while having levels of hormones associated with stress or hormones associated with self-confidence and self-belief sampled. And amazingly, within just two minutes of standing like Wonder Woman, Superman, levels of stress hormone dropped substantially and levels of hormones associated with confidence and self-belief actually rose substantially. And, mm. and the opposite happened for people. She asked people, as a comparison, to stand in a way that, made, that they would do if they felt lacking in confidence or self-belief. So like, like that, or fearful, you know, bite your nails or move your eyes, anything that, may, that you would normally do if you feel nervous or afraid or fearful. And stress hormone levels in two minutes spiked. And all the wow. hormones associated with confidence and self-esteem dropped. So, she, so she, she wrote in her research that you can actually use your body to create how you want to feel. And I, when I read that, I thought, wow. So I really went yeah. to town. I did that every single day. That became my morning spiritual practice where I would stand like Wonder Woman. You know, sometimes <laughs> I'd just get, no one's in the room, I'd stand like Superman. You know, and, for two minutes, time myself, and then I'd walk around the room trying to find a way of moving and, and almost trying to 
program. This is how I will walk from now on in my quieter mm. moments. I'll drop my shoulders a bit. I'll stretch my spine. I'll be conscious of my breathing because that helps my posture as well and it slows my mind down. And I literally relentlessly, over the next couple of months, I adjusted and corrected my posture relentlessly throughout the day, whether I was standing in the queue to a coffee shop or sitting in a seat or just walking to town or carrying shopping. It didn't matter. Relentlessly, mm. about 10 times a day, maybe more, I would remember to adjust my posture and try to tell my brain this is how I want to feel. Now, a remarkable thing happens there because the brain, if you adjust any muscles consistently, the brain undergoes neuroplasticity in regions associated with those muscles. I mean, Harvard, great experiment, Harvard got volunteers to play five notes on a piano repetitively for five days and it literally grew the region of the brain connected to the finger muscles like a muscle. And so I figured that will happen to these muscles I'm exercising. And at the same time, the muscles associated with fear and anxiety and stress and worry or low self-esteem, I'm not using those muscles as much. So therefore, the, the neural centers of those will begin to degrade. And what I will get is a tipping point. And that was my theory, my hypothesis, if you will, that I would start to build the regions of the brain where of the muscles associated with feeling good on the inside and reduce the muscles in you know, the, the, neuro, the centers of the brain in the regions associated with low self-esteem. And if that was the case, then that would automatically have an impact on how I felt. And it literally... It was life-changing. Within two months, I'd say within two months, it was unbelievably life-changing. I've never gone back because I've, I've never wow. gone back to the old posture because the gains and how I felt on the inside, it was phenomenal. And, and I became so passionate talking about that because it was, I didn't have to, you know, meet my inner child and I didn't have to do any extensive psychotherapy work and I'm not mm. please don't assume I'm knocking those these are so valuable at particular times in your life but for mm. where I was at that time the immediate thing I needed was something powerful and fast that didn't take a lot of mental effort because I didn't have the mental effort to put into it I didn't have the headspace I needed something relatively simple and how much simpler than adjusting your posture providing you do it often enough. You can't change brain circuits unless you keep doing something repetitively. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew I had to do this repetitively all throughout the day for a number of weeks to get it to stick. But literally, it was the, the most powerful technique uh, that I've ever, ever practiced in my life for anything. I, I absolutely love the simplicity of that. Uh, and I, I think it's an important point you, you bring up there about psychotherapy. Ye yes, it's it's an incredible tool, Absolutely. and I I actually think a lot of people should should engage in it if they can, but it can feel like a massive step. I mean, just even having the confidence to admit to yourself and other people, you know, I might need help here, or yeah. there might be something in my past or my present that I need to work on. But the simple act of changing body posture and having those almost immediate effects over a, a few months and the analogy of a muscle getting stronger yeah. hypertrophying becoming more resilient I, I i really really enjoy that and and that's something that because i've watched a couple of lectures of yours and that's something that you can actually see demonstrated on functional mris yeah. um with, with not only the the physical changes but the the mental sort of uh, visualization of it as well even if you 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 can't get up or you, or you don't have the opportunity 
to to stand in front of a mirror for, for two minutes just the thought of it alone mm. can be as impactful yeah in fact one of the you know I, i've i've written i've spoken a lot even in sports coaching you know by by suggesting because there's a lot of research on if you repetitively visualize a movement for example a sports person who struggled with a particular type of, say it's a tennis shot, for example, if you relentlessly visualize that shot where you find your weakness, then your muscles not only get stronger and more adapted, but the neural centers of the brain undergo the same kind of change, even if you just imagine it kind of thing. And, and lots of research has been done in patients who have had a stroke that speeded up rehabilitation if they visualize again for at least half an hour a day, four or five times a week, doing movements that they're familiar with. So... So one of the things I remember running a wee course on public speaking uh, and, and all I was teaching people was well, a wee bit about how to, you know, tap into your own self. But the main exercise was visualizing themselves on the, the actual stage, but not what most people do is you visualize the end result people clapping. And I said, no, visualize from the moment your name is called and you're moving off the chair and visualize your body language. Feel your shoulders dropping with relaxation because normally if your name's being called, you start feeling anxious. So your body goes into anxiety mode and your muscles will then make you feel even more anxious. So imagine dropping your shoulders, lengthening your spine, reducing your rate of walking to the stage. Imagine you're breathing comfortably. Now what you're doing is you're creating the emotional state associated with what you want to be. And then imagine delivering the first minute or two of your talk, not just what you're saying, but imagine how you say those things. Imagine the way in which you say the rate of speech. Imagine slowing down your speech and, and, and emphasizing particular points and do that repetitively. And when you come to that situation, your brain will default into that and you'll, that will come quite naturally. And the reason it works is because if you visualize something in many ways, particularly if it's a muscle movement, the brain doesn't make much of a distinction between whether you're actually doing it or whether you're imagining doing it. There was, I mentioned briefly a few moments ago, but Harvard research led by a professor called Alvaro Pascal Leon, he got volunteers to play notes on the piano for two hours a day for five days. And they had brain regions the brain scanned in the region associated, connected with finger muscles and there was massive change. But another group of people he asked to imagine playing the notes for the same two hours and five consecutive days. It's called kinesthetic imagery. And what you're doing is you're imagining how it would feel if you were playing the notes. So imagine, mm. no, you can look at, imagine looking at your fingers, that, that works as well. But in particular, imagine as if you really were Imagine as if you really were playing the notes with your fingers for that two hours and he scanned their brain as well. And amazingly, if you held the brain scan side by side of those who played the notes after five days, those who imagined, it's exactly the same. About a 97% pixel overlap if you, you count the, the area, mm. but 97% overlap. In other words, in that exercise, the brain made no distinction at all between who played the notes with their fingers and who played the notes with their mind. So visualizing stuff in the brain, your, to your brain, can be as if you really are doing this stuff or as if this stuff is, is really, really happening. So that I, I use that as well for developing my self-esteem, particularly in, in situations that I knew that I would tend to be feeling a bit anxious about or nervous about or feeling a bit shy about. And so I'd visualize myself for a week leading up to it, like five times a day, 
you know, yeah. it only takes five, it only takes a couple of minutes, but just rehearse mentally, rehearse the thing, but not just rehearse the interaction, but rehearse how my how I will be holding and moving my body in the lead up to and going through that situation. And that's what you rehearse, not just the final outcome. Yes, final outcome, but pay more attention to how you develop, how you create that final outcome through how you're holding and moving your body. And that was so incredibly useful, particularly for those moments that I knew that I tended to be weaker on in sense in terms of, of how I felt about myself on the inside. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is amazing that you, you've gone on this journey all from starting at a pharma company or you notice the placebo effect, and that's where your interest lay from your earlier childhood experiences with your with your mother. I think most people think about the placebo effect in the context of pain mm. and pain relief. Here's a sugar pill, and here is a, a genuine paracetamol, um, and that there are similar effects. But the, the placebo effect, I think, can be uh, un, well understood because you know we have natural. Um, uh, pain relief uh, chemicals that we release from our brain, natural opiates, um, endocannabinoids as well. What other instances can this effect um, be utilized and magnified? Because what you're talking about there is self-esteem, uh, cardiovascular outcomes as well. Mm. There seems to be no end, but where do you think the, this um, impact of the mind-body connection can be best applied, if if not everywhere? It, it, ha it has huge implications, because if you, if you dig into how the placebo effect actually works, then you see something similar impacting the entire body the entire body. Because ultimately, coming back to that example of pain, for example, when a person gets a placebo for pain, the pain goes away a lot of the time, not just because they're imagining it's going away or because they think it's going away, it's because the brain has actually produced its own natural version of morphine. So what happens is the brain has produced what it needs to produce to deliver what the person believes is supposed to happen. In other words, belief, and, and this is a much broader concept, not just belief, but even visualization and other things, it causes the brain to produce what it needs to produce to deliver what you are focusing on, whether you believe something, expect something, or even imagining it. And, and broadly speaking, that's kind of how the mind-body connection works. Like different emotional, say even visualizing, like visualizing the immune system, for example, like little piranha fish destroying Pathogens and stuff has actually been shown to activate and enhance immune function. So what's happening there, it's similar to the placebo effect. In other words, you're, the, you're mobilizing the body's natural resources to deliver what you're focused on, whether the focus is a belief, an expectation, a, a feeling or an imagination. And even in some ways, it's very related to stress. When you feel stressed, uh, you produce stress hormones. Not necessarily because you're in a stressful situation, but because of how you feel. Because two people can be in the exact same situation. One feels stressed and one doesn't. So the one who's feeling stressed will have far more adrenaline and cortisol than the other one. So it's not really the situation. I mean, out with really serious events where the nervous system kicks in, of course. But for most of the stressful situations in our lives, it's our perception of a situation more than the situation itself. But turn that around. And what about its opposite? Physiologically, the opposite of stress is kindness. It's how kindness feels. 
Some psychologists refer to it as elevation. You, kindness feels like an elevated state. You help someone, it feels satisfying and it feels nice. If you observe an act of kindness, sometimes you feel moved or inspired. But globally, those are referred to similarly as elevation. Now, elevation, that feelings associated with kindness, rather than producing stress hormones because you feel stressed, they produce, I call them kindness hormones. Yeah. Really just to, to show that they're produced by the same overall mechanism. It's how you feel that generates it. Now, the main kindness hormone actually is oxytocin, the reproductive mm. hormone, but that's not just a reproductive hormone. It has multiple roles in the body. It's, it's actually a cardio, what few people know, very few people know, it's a cardioprotective hormone. And that means that it delivers some degree of cardioprotection. One of the principal ways it does it is by reducing blood pressure. To be more technical, it stimulates the production of nitric oxide and atrial natriuretic, natriuretic peptide. And so they do the business. I just call it AMP. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't pronounce yeah, it properly. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, neither can I. So it produces <laughs> nitric oxide and AMP, which does the business of reducing blood pressure. But oxytocin produces those things. So any state that produces oxytocin, therefore, well, I mean, the research in this began by noticing that women breastfeeding had lower blood pressure. And this was more than 20 years ago when the research was first done. And they realized that what was causing it was the production of oxytocin and therefore the, the nitric oxide and the ANP production coming out of that, all the research since. So in other words, being kind because of how it makes you feel is cardioprotective because it delivers, because of how you feel delivers that that ultimate me switches on that, that mechanism, just like feeling stressed increases blood pressure. Feelings associated with kindness can have the opposite effect. This is why I call it an opposite. Kindness is the opposite of stress. But ultimately, mm. what it really is a demonstration of is the mind-body connection. It's Here is a feeling, and the feeling is causing a beneficial physiological state. And we've known about this for, you know, 100 years, you feel stressed that produces these effects. It's only nowadays we're turning it around and saying, wait a minute, it's not mm -hmm. feeling, stress isn't the only feeling a person can have. And, and this, is a, this is part of a large body of research like the placebo effect that shows that a, a psychological state of expectation or belief produces a neurological and also a physiological effect. Visualization, for example, produces effect neurological physiological and effects at the cellular level in terms of how muscle activity works and even visualizing the immune system impacts immune function. So feelings associated with stress, feelings associated with kindness have equal and opposite effects. So what we're seeing is a large body of research now showing that how you think, feel and believe does have effects. So the, the challenge in life then is can I therefore and to make sure that my mind and emotions are dominated with healthy, in, in healthy ways with dominant states rather than reactive, st reactively stressful things. It's not easy to do, but mm -hmm. if we know that would be healthy, then it's, I guess one of the steps forward is let's figure out how to change your mindset so that the mind becomes more naturally able to, as you, you, you know, as you look through the landscape of your life on an average day, that your mind naturally settles more in the light than the dark, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it resonates with me so much because I think over a period of time, and I think 
because of my privileged position being uh, in, the, in the medical field um, with supportive colleagues, um, a family, you know, I, I'm able to appreciate all this and, and actually cultivate a sense of gratitude and positivity most days. But I think it's almost like um, we have to balance um, positivity with toxic positivity, which is a trap that I think a lot of doctors fall into, especially when they're faced with someone who's going through uh, depression, anxiety, or things that we struggle to empathize with or understand. Um, and, and I wonder if you could perhaps uh, talk a little bit more about how, how we balance you know, over positivity and actually letting negative thoughts sit with you accept them wash over you and then proceed going forward yeah absolutely it's so important to not wash over yeah I'm, I'm so glad you asked that 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 question because it is easy to become obsessed with i've got to be positive i've got to be positive mm. i've got to be positive and it's not so much like that it's more about you're training yourself so that that becomes more natural but in the process of it becoming more natural you have to deal with the stuff that comes out and not push it it, not push it inside, if you will. Mm. And, and there's a lot of research on how emotions can be lodged in the body in the sense that, I mean, if you understand that there is a mind-body connection, then if there's an emotional state that you haven't dealt with, it would make sense that on some way, whether it's just through the stress effects in certain ways, that that could well have a counterpart in the body in some way that the body is, is functioning. There was some really cracking research on uh, expressive writing. So this is about getting out what is inside. And, uh, and what basically what happened is they found this technique. It was four consecutive days writing for 15 minutes a, a day. So that was all 15 minutes a day on four consecutive days. And it was a guy, a professor called James Pennybaker. And he's, he's written, I think the book's called Expressive Writing actually. He's a professor, psychology professor. And then he pioneered this technique, simple technique. And what he did, he got a group of people who would write for 15 minutes just about life. And they were compared with people writing about 15 minutes a day, four consecutive days, about stuff that they felt had traumatized them in some way. So whether it was a, a massive, you know, life-changing trauma or whether it was just something milder, like just just situations that been feeling hurt or dejected because someone's broken up with you or, or something else and there's an or any traumas and, and emotional challenges and issues that anyone has at a whole spectrum 15 minutes a day writing just what happened how you felt about it then how you feel about it now how it's affected your life that was just the guidelines really just to help you to dive into it and get out of it four days later they you know, in a number of experiments, one of the experiments they did, they, they tracked medical visits to the medical centre. This was done initially with students, a couple of hundred students. They tracked over the previous six months and the next six months numbers of visits to the health centre. And there was a massive drop in health centre visits for those who'd literally spent 15 minutes of the expressive writing. In other research, they tried to track why that was, and there was a number of less stress, better positive emotion. But one of the things they tracked was a massive increase in immune function. One of the things they did, they gave people an endotoxin, exposed people to an endotoxin, you know, the harmless part of a toxin. And they found that the immune response to the endotoxin in those who were who'd done the expressive writing 
was, I think it was like an order of magnitude, whatever they measured, it was significantly higher than for those who hadn't done the expressive writing, but who, for the same duration of time, had written 15 minutes a day, but just about ordinary life events. So there was, so here was a, a, an immunological effect of having just got out of the system 15 minutes a day. So it's, it's so, so important. So, so I love what you said about toxic positivity because we end up thinking, I have to be positive all the time. But it's not really about that. It's, it's like training a muscle. You're training mm. yourself so that that becomes natural, not forced. And if it, in the process of it becoming natural, stuff will come up and it's best to deal with it and not push it deep, deep inside. Yeah, I, I, I love all this research looking at specific parameters as well, particularly immune function. You know, it, it's quite um, simple to to measure um, in serum, you know, the response to an endotoxin and all the things that we're talking about with the mind-body connection would have been dismissed 20 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, you're truly one of the pioneers of this because you probably had uh, undergone a lot of criticism throughout your career Initially. up until this point. It's yeah. only until now that, you know, you have all these publications from distinguished institutions that validate a lot of what we've been thinking for, for many years. And it, it just stems a lot from, you know, ancient medicines, whether it be Chinese or Ayurveda as well. Mm. And, I, and I think, you know, this is really a, a, a suite of different um, medical interventions that we have. I like to talk about nutritional medicine and diet, but I think uh, the, the the aspects of mind-body medicine, exercise, sleep, hygiene, all these things mm. can have a, a, a measurable impact on things like the immune system. And we need to be a lot more um, uh, receptive uh, to all these different ways. And, and I, I love the fact that you mentioned expressive writing because I was having a conversation with uh, a couple of specialists in migraine um, and, and they're the medical doctors and they use expressive writing with their patients really? who are suffering from migraine. Wow. Yeah. And it's and it's one of the most uh, uh, positive tools that they've had with their patients, and and it leads to anecdotal but demonstrable impacts on the frequency of migraines, which is fascinating. Isn't that amazing? Wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great to see a like a real world application out with just the research papers. It's incredible that, that that's be, that's being used because because then obviously it's having an effect on what is triggering the migraine. By just simply mm, getting absolutely. out, and, and it it comes to I've I've often I created a wee model a few years ago, called the four component emotion model. Like we think of emotion or a feeling as just a feeling, but in actual mm. fact it's four components. You cannot you cannot disentangle the feeling from the corresponding brain chemistry. So there will always be a, a you know a, a correlation between how you feel and what's happening in the brain. But you also can't disentangle how you feel from your autonomic nervous system. You know, like mm -hmm. uh, the impact on on your stress hormones, your your heart, your liver, kidney. You can't disentangle how you feel from the ANS. In fact, I've got a little device, one that measures heart rate variability, but another that mm. that measures a electric what's well, electrodermal activity. It's it's galvanic skin response. Basically, you put your finger in a wee plate, and it it measures the change in electrical current flowing through your finger, which is affected by micro amounts of sweat. So the oh. micro amounts of sweat change the salt concentration, so of that course, therefore yeah, increases yeah. electrical conductivity. Now the micro amounts of stress, I'm talking micro amounts of stress, it's so sensitive to where your mind is. It's so sensitive that if you, if you think, you're thinking of something pleasant, and then your mind for an, a second goes on to something stressful or that makes you feel anxious, immediately, zzz, 
it yeah, goes up because yeah. the sweating, micro levels of sweating changes the electrical conductivity and the little line goes up uh, on, on the screen. And so what that's demonstrating is your autonomic nervous system responding yeah. to how you feel, where, you, where your mind is. And similarly, what we've discussed already, you cannot disentangle how you feel from your muscles. So the four components of emotion are feelings, brain chemistry, and also body chemistry, autonomic nervous system, and muscles. And all four of them are connected at all four times. So therefore, not just will a feeling, like even a repressed feeling, cause your muscles to be naturally tighter most of the time, but it may well be that there's a counterpart in the nervous system that's also on alert and, and tensed up, for example. In fact, I, I read a book recently, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, by Vessel van der Kolk, is it? Uh, one amazing, he's a trauma specialist, but researcher, The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, and he, he talks about some research that had been done on uh, people, on women who'd been abused uh, early in life. And, and found that in that subset, that just it was a very small pilot study, that they found an abnormal ratio in the immune system, like the immune system still had a memory, was still responding to a memory, a threat memory. And so the, the immune system was always an alert. Most of them had an imbalance that, that was either causing an autoimmune condition or was related uh -huh. to an autoimmune condition, but very close to that. Uh, and mm. and they, they reckoned, they believed that it was due to this imbalance where the immune system was literally on threat. Even if you didn't emotionally feel that or physically feel it, it was like the body was feeling it on, on some way and it was that threat was always there. And for some of the women, they had autoimmune conditions. I think they'd selected women for, for that, that kind of reason. And they were drawing this comparison, a possible, relation, a possible correlation between um, having been abused in that way with autoimmune conditions. Obviously, you're a small study, you can't absolutely say that's a fact. I just that's wanted a... to mention it in the context that it might be evidence for the fact that emo how you feel might always have a physiological counterpart, if, even though you can't see it at the time, just like the immune system Immune function increases, you know, improves when you do expressive writing. There might be well be more things that improve that we don't know about when you do expressive writing. Well, this is. I'm really glad you did mention that because I think certainly as physicians, we're almost afraid to pipe up when we have these anecdotes of people that we've spotted these trends in. And when you said that, it's brought up something. I don't know whether I've shared it on the pod, but I had a patient a few years ago. Um, who was suffering from an autoimmune condition. And I uh, was was talking to her, it was the end of the clinic, so I had a little bit more time because as you probably know, in the NHS, we have about eight to nine minutes per patient. Mm. And um, we got talking and I, and, and I asked this question, you know, well, when's the last time you felt well? And we went through her timeline and, and this poor lady had been... Um, subject of abuse and she'd had PTSD mm. uh, in her late 20s and it was at that time in 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 the the three to six month period I think it was that she was then diagnosed with autoimmune condition and and that was my 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 anecdotal experiences mm. and and the number of times I've done that exercise again with other people who have very different conditions but but autoimmune as well it's quite striking 
Um, and, and this has been sort of uh, validated by a few of my other colleagues mm. with their own anecdotes as well. But to your point, you know, it's really hard to 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 gather all this information, to come up with a hypothesis, and to test mm. something like that without the 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 relevant data. I mean, I, I need to probably look at um, Robert Sapolsky's work in a bit more detail. He studied stress mm. um, for his his whole life, and, and I think there's there's certainly um, a, a, a manifestation of what we label as autoimmune conditions that have their roots mm. in emotional distress. Yeah, yeah. Um, C- certainly that's w- that's where that section of the book was, was going, w- was pointing mm. out that they've seen that so many times. That's why they did that relatively small study uh, in, con- in concert with university academic departments. They did that small study because they'd seen it coming up anecdotally so many mm. times in individual practices that let's actually test it, let's work with, a, with one of the major hospitals and they looked at that particular ratio uh, and, and they were, what they were suggesting is there was a, a correlation between, they, did, they, went, they, they didn't go as far as saying causal because you don't know yet until you test more, but they said there was yeah. definitely a correlation between the autoimmune condition and the, the, the abuse at, the, at that early, early stage in mm. life. You know, yeah. and, and I think the, the advantage of, of knowing these areas of research is that maybe can help. There might be some people who can benefit uh, with some, maybe psychotherapy, maybe some other deeper techniques that might well mm. have an impact on autoimmune conditions. I don't know of any research that's looked into that yet because it's diff- mm. as you know in science, it's difficult to draw a causal effect, but it might, it might well be that that release of emotion, because certainly when it elevates immune function in response to an endotoxin, it might well, you might find for some people, and I don't know, you know, you wouldn't be hard to predict who these people are, but you might find that that balance that's linked with autoimmune conditions might well stabilize itself as the personality is somehow able to stabilize themselves in some way. Yeah. It's it's strange because I really want to ask you a, a bit more about kindness, um, and I recognise it's quite a strange time to be talking about kindness, given what's going on with the civil rights movement and and protests, and, and I believe that there is an appropriate time for anger mm. um, uh, and demonstration, but I'm also a firm believer in the sort of minuscule actions of change, which is initiated with thought yeah. uh, and that coalesces into you know a, a massive shift in in um in compassion and and the way we uh function as society but but i wonder if you could talk a bit about the multiplicity of kindness and and how contagious it oh, is yeah. yeah um yeah not not to talk about the virality nature of it and uh, excuse the pun but <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 one of the things that i find fascinating about kindness is is highly contagious in fact it's the most contagious thing uh, researchers at Harvard and Yale, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, did some research where they found that kindness ripples outwards like a pebble mm. dropped in a pond. You know, if you drop a pebble in a pond and it, it goes out and it and different, and you see the waves rising and falling and moving out at the other end of the pond, a wee lily pad does that and it's waving up and down. And you you think, why yeah. is the lily pad waving up and down? Well, it's because of the pebble. But the pebble... Is Just a, for the listeners, David's doing a bit of a body pop. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a, a swaying shoulder movement here. I'm, I'm simulating as if I was sitting on a lily pad and I'm going up and down. But, but the, the lily pad's going up and down 
because of the wave, but what created the wave was the pebble dropped in a pond. Now that's a really good metaphor. That's why maybe that's why they call it the ripple effect. It's a very mm. good metaphor for kindness because kindness is the pebble dropped in a pond. And what Fowler and Kostakis did is they tracked the waves. And what they found is if you be kind to someone, that because of how you make that person feel, that person will be kind or kinder to someone else because of how you made them feel. Now that someone else is called one degree of separation from you, one social step away. But that person will be kind or kinder to someone else because of how they, they're made to feel. And that's two degrees of separation. But that person will be kind or kinder to someone else because of how they feel. And that's three degrees of separation. That's the lily pad now at the far end of the pond. But it's not just one lily pad. It's many, many lily pads because this is where the R number comes in. Because one of the things that Christakis and Fowler did in that paper, and if you look at some other research, you, you can see that the R number for kindness is somewhere between four and five and actually nearer to five. In Christakis and Fowler's, it was four, given the constraints mm. of that piece of that research but in actual fact if you look at other stuff it's probably closer to five and what that means is when you're kind to someone because of how you make that person feel and I'm talking to any listener today if you do something kind for someone if you were to follow them around for the rest of the day which I hope you don't but if you had to what you would notice is because of how you made that person feel, whether grateful, you're relieved, satisfied, inspired, moved, whatever, that person will likely be kind or kinder to five people over the course of the next rest of the day, over the course of the next 24 hours, because of how you made them feel. Now that's the R number, five. Now each mm. of those five, that's at one degree, at one social step from you, one degree of separation. Each of those five will be kind or kinder to five further people. So that's the second wave going out from in, towards the lily pad. Now that's 25 at two degrees of separation, but each of those 25 will be kind or kinder to five. And now that's 125 lily pads from a single <laughs> pebble. It's 125 people from a single act of kindness. And obviously that number, it will vary. It'll be higher for some people, lower for other people lots of factors, but on average, about 125 people. So the listeners today, if you do something kind for someone, it does not stop with that person. That person will absolutely be kind or kinder to more people as the day goes on, and each of those will be more. And you literally, you're setting in motion all these ripples. Now, this, the reason I say it's more contagious is even at its peak, the R number for coronavirus was what, 2.5 even at its peak. Mm. Now, mm. at three degrees of separation, that's 2.5. One person infects 2.5, who infects 2.5, who infects 2.5. So that's 15.625, about 16 people at three, 16 people at three degrees of separation. But, but kindness is 125. So the R number tells you how exponential it is. So kindness is far, far more exponential than than, you know, the coronavirus. And, and it's a nice way to think about it because coronavirus hasn't reached every household, but kindness has. And that's just mm. a, that just shows us, if you think about it, think about it, kindness is everywhere. More, far more places than the virus ever got to because it's so highly contagious. And it, and it, it taps into our nature, our deepest, you yeah. know, the, the, the gene for the kindness hormone is one of the oldest in the human genome. 
that's 500 million years old and four oh, days. Oh, wow. No, well, four days. I know I did. Just joking. <laughs> <laughs> it's 500 million years old. It's had 500 million. All, all warm-blooded species have a version of it. And it's one of the things that keeps animals together. It keep, it, it, animals come together and they socialize, they play. And it's related to that because the gene is so old, so ancient. It plays such a vital health role and mm. a role in social behavior that's ensured the survival of all species to, to this point. And so it, in 500 million years, that's why it's involved in so many different parts of the body. It's involved in the cardiovascular system, the immune system, even involved in the, the creation of neurons like neurogenesis. It's involved in cardiomyogenesis, the building of, of, of heart muscle cells. It's involved in building our bones and our skin. It, it's involved in digestion, gastric motility. It plays many, many important roles, even rebuilding blood vessels, angiogenesis. It plays huge numbers of roles in the body, the kindness hormone, which suggests that all of these functions in the body respond to being kind. So, so not only is it contagious out in the world, it's contagious inside your own world, inside your own body. It has multiple effects. Being kind have multiple health-giving effects in yourself. I mean, if if that wasn't an advert for being kind, uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd buy kindness here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that really does resonate w with me quite a bit because I always like to think about the evolutionary perspective of why we are yeah. like we are like why for example um, fasting might have benefits mm. uh, and why we have evolved to be a, a cooperative uh, species mm. uh, because it is literally inbuilt in our genomic code and um, it's necessary for survival so that's um I think that's a brilliant way to sum up our conversation. Uh honestly that that was super inspiring. <laughs> oh, for me too. It's been great just chatting with you here. I've really really enjoyed this this chat. Definitely, definitely. And there's so much more I want to talk to you about as well actually about like you know whether psychedelics could have a role in conjuring kindness particularly for those who have uh, a history of trauma. Yeah. Um you know whether it unlocks something um and uh, even more about the mind-body connection. I mean, just what you were talking about there with the kindness woman and having, um, you know, a, a plethora of different impacts on different parts of the body. Um, what, what are the kindness hormones beyond oxytocin? Are, are there any others? Uh, it, well, that, it main, mainly oxytocin. But but if you tr if you then follow it through, then because they tr it triggers the release of nitric oxide and ANP, mm -hmm. I, I can mm -hmm. even though they're not necessarily hormones, I. I just to keep the language as kindness hormones, I, I can uh, refer mm. to those as kindness hormones as well, even though they're not hormones. But it's just, mm. you know, it makes it simpler if I just stick, have one word <laughs> rather than, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. A, a kindness molecule, <laughs> nitric oxide, you know, NNO, and a, and a, and a, and a kindness, uh, you know, protein, you know, it's easier just to, for the language. But, but as, as far as, as the research goes, those are the three things that you can track. I mean, and then you can also see clear changes as a consequence of oxytocin. It plays a role as a very powerful antioxidant and anti-inflammatory. Mm. Research looked take, took skin took, sorry took cells from the cardiovascular system, a, a and cells from the immune system, and put them under stress in the lab, uh, and and measured high levels of oxidative stress, so free radicals and inflammation of pro-inflammatory cytokines and then did the same experiment but then introduced oxytocin 
and in both the, car the, the cardiovascular cells and immune cells, the levels of oxidative stress and inflammation massively, massively dropped rapidly in response wow. to just doing the same stress experiment in the presence of the kindness hormone. In other words, when the kindness hormone's there, the stress on the cardiovascular system and the immune system is massively reduced. And that's roughly what the study was showing is the effect of stress on the cardiovascular system and the immune system is substantially lowered at the cellular mm. level when you have the kindness hormone there. And I think that's a, an amazing, you know, extension of, of what I was talking about as, as well. I just forgot to mention that earlier. <laughs> But uh, uh, please tell me you're writing a book on this. I've written, uh, <laughs> I've written three. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Right, but, but specifically about the inflammation effect. All right, well, I, I, I put it in one chapter. One of my books is called The Five Side Effects of Kindness. And, uh -huh. and I repackaged the word side effects because I worked in AstraZeneca and a side effect <laughs> is a negative side effect of a drug. Yeah. So I thought I'm going to change yeah. the... A side effect is just something that happens alongside what mm. you're doing. So one, ha it happens to be that one of the side effects of being kind is is improved cardiovascular health and it slows aging and the uh, the anti-inflammatory effect is there in the cardiovascular system and in aging in fact some gerontologists refer to inflammation as inflammaging because yeah. it plays such a central role in aging of the body in a number of different not just outwardly but a number of different internal mm. It systems. So I, I, I gathered together that research in the five side effects of kindness about the the anti-inflammatory and the antioxidant effect of kindness. Also, I, I've got a book called The Little Book of Kindness where I got that wee bit illustrated as well. Nice. I'm not trying to nice. plug my books. I, I'm not really. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I am the least salesperson. I, I feel very uncomfortable even promoting something that people have to pay for. I'm terrible at it. So I when, know when I'm promoting, exactly when I'm talking mean. about a yeah. book, I'm not trying to sell the book for my benefit. I'm literally saying this is where you get the information. And it's, you know, if Definitely. I read it myself, I would think it's a very couple of very good books. <laughs> and I'm not. Yeah. A, <laughs> <laughs> Only because there's nowhere else to get that information. That's all I mean. There's, yeah. there's, I don't know anywhere else other than looking through PubMed and yeah. research journal. I don't know where else to get that information other than, you know, and I gathered it together in the books because I thought it was so useful for people to yeah. have. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we'll be promoting all of that for you. So don't worry about that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at doing it. <laughs> really what, what, are you, what are you working on next? Uh, I, I, I'm working... Uh, I'm, I'm, I've got an online uh, community that I'm, I work a lot on and developing that. I do live talks every month, personal development, mm. it's called Personal Development Club. And I invest a lot of time in, in creating video content and audio content for that, uh, which is based on the needs of members, basically. And I'm also working on a book at the moment that's, that's finding scientific evidence for stuff that people tend to be skeptical about if I think the skepticism is knee-jerk or unfounded. So even uh -huh. some, some aspects of alternative health and lifestyle uh, that mm. people would tend to be skeptical about. Uh, and I'm building a scientific framework around because a lot of skepticism on things, even like the mind-body connection is completely unfounded. I call it knee-jerk skepticism. Mm. It's, it doesn't mm. sound plausible. But yeah. when you say something doesn't sound plausible, it's mostly because you have no expertise in that field. 
Yeah. And so what I'm doing is I'm gathering a large number of subjects that that people think of in those kind of ways. And I've found some amazing, fascinating information, really. And, and it's worked really well with the fact that I'm halfway through a, a degree, part-time degree in mathematics and physics. I was going to ask, is is that why you decided to do your degree in mathematics and physics it's to, partly, to sort of shape that framework? Partly related because I was starting to write a little bit when I was touching on things like quantum entanglement and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, I take my role as a writer and an educator very seriously. Mm. And when you have PhD after your name and you say something that's scientific, people consider you as an expert. And mm. I, I worried that I might be misrepresenting that subject that I don't really know intuitively that well. It's just from what you read here and there. And, and stuff, and I thought that doesn't feel, for me, like I'm taking my role seriously. So I decided mm -hmm. to do a degree in it. Uh, I've been re looking through a, a university text anyway on relativity, because I, I was exploring the parallels between Einstein's relativity theory and Tibetan Buddhism. Because Tibetan Buddhism have a theory of relativity. It's called dependent origination. But it, it's in spiritual language, the equivalent of Einstein's mathematical relativity theory. And I was writing about that parallel and I just again I just didn't feel like I knew the, the science well enough so I thought you know what I'm going to do a formal honours degree and mm. study it heavy it's very very dense mathematics I've just done an exam with covering quantum mechanics relativity Pauli exclusion principle gravitational fields electromagnetism it was heavy going in the maths but I love it because it's given me a, a depth of understanding of principles that I'd only just talked about because I'd read it somewhere in a popular science mm. thing. But now I, my understanding of, of it is far deeper and far more intuitive. And there's less risk of mis, misrepresenting the science. And that's really why I, I, I'm studying formally. So that, I, so that when I say something, it, it's factually correct, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And it's not something Look, that I've made an error with. Absolutely. I... I, I, I completely concur with the same sort of um uh fear of misrepresentation because when you have doctor in front of your name and you are labeled as uh, a medic who's you know done all their formal training plus their postgraduate level training as well you're automatically seen as an expert yeah. now i'm a firm believer and that there's no such thing as an expert there's just someone who's well read yeah. in a particular subject yeah. right and i don't think of myself ever getting to that stage where i'll ever be an expert even if i spend the next 20 30 years reading nutritional medicine yeah. or whatever um but but for those reasons that's why i decided to do my masters in nutritional medicine at the university of surrey to prove to myself actually that i i can actually talk about this with some degree of authority mm. um and i'll be honest i i I, I definitely suffer from imposter syndrome and I, and I steer away from sort of topics that I don't fully understand. And that's partly why I think I, I wanted to talk to you about the subject because I, I don't really understand the quantum physics behind uh, the, the theory of quantum healing. Um, and I think it warrants a lot more attention because I intuitively believe mm. that there is something there that is worth studying but I'm just not well read enough on the subject matter to put it out to the public yeah. from my perspective anyway. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've actually found in researching for this new book is evidence of correlations between people's 
mental and emotional states, regardless of the distance separating them. And some of the early work was done back in 1965 on monozygotic identical twins mm. and found correlations in alpha brainwaves, no matter how far apart they were. And wow. this was based on, this was published in Science. It's one of the top scientific journals in the world. It's, it's the American equivalent of Nature, the, I guess mm. the premier journal. And it was based on some anecdotal evidence of identical twins who seemed to know when something had happened to the other. Uh, and that actually gave birth to a massive field that most people have, most scientists have rejected on the basis that it doesn't sound plausible. And the reason for that is because we are still in the mainstream wedded to the model that consciousness is inside your skull and it's generated mm. by brain, science, brain chemistry. But there is no evidence of that. In fact, the philosopher David Chalmers refers to the hard problem of consciousness, that we don't know where consciousness, what it is or where it arises from. And a growing number of researchers and philosophers are saying, okay, let's play with the notion that maybe consciousness itself is fundamental. Mm. It's fundamental to, to reality. Maybe it sits even on a parallel with or beneath space-time. And if that was the case, then that might well introduce the possibility that identical twins, for example, could feel when something happened to the other. But then research since then, uh, even up to last year, using computer learning to analyze EEG overlap traces, realize the phenomena isn't just present in identical twins, but to anyone who shares a strong enough emotional bond did it with long-term partners that was correlated with the quality of their relationship. With mother and daughter was another strong, even functional MRI. Looking at mm. MRIs, when if the emotional bond was strong enough, if one person was startled, the MRI picked up a change in the visual cortex. If the person was visually startled, the MRI of the, of the other half of the relationship picked up a change in the visual cortex at the instant their correlated partner was stimulated. Wow. And now, last year, there was a pub paper published by computer scientists and, and statisticians using machine learning, sophisticated machine learning, to analyze EE overlaps and found astonishing correlations in these types of experiments. In other words, there is a connection between people at a distance. And that immediately opens up the eye. There's lots of research on distant healing, sending healing to people, even prayer. Mm. And it doesn't mm. necessarily have to be religious prayer. If we dispense with mm. the notion that it's, say, that you pray to God and it's God doing it, and turn it around and imagine that it's something to do with your consciousness, then you can see statistically. In fact, the head of the, the chairman of the American Statistics Association, Jessica Utz, former chair, actually spoke about this phenomena at the annual general meeting to 6,000 statisticians in 2016 and said her, she was what for the US government during the Cold War and under the Secrets Act was not allowed to talk about it. But now she can and she said the data is compelling and it would be widely accepted if it pertained to any other field of science. But because it, because it relates to a field of science that people are skeptical about, most people mm. reject it on the notion that it doesn't sound plausible. So I've gathered together a lot of that research in one chapter of the book, 
as an area of stuff that people tend to have knee-jerk scepticism about and I've yeah. introduced uh, how it works. I've not gone into the... I've gone into a wh- little bit of the physics of not saying it's physics that explains it, but there is a, an obvious correlation between the phenomena and therefore I'm suggesting in the book the phenomena is of, is probably related. This entanglement between states of consciousness and two people at a distance is there's a parallel with quantum entanglement. I'm not saying quantum entanglement is the is the cause of that or is what's happening because quantum entanglement doesn't pertain to information travelling. But there's a correlation between the... There's a, an obvious parallel between the phenomena. And so what I've done in that chapter is describe quantum entanglement and describe entanglement of conscious and unconscious states and say there's an obvious parallel doesn't mean they're the same thing, but maybe they both arise from a deeper fundamental aspect of nature itself. And that's what... You, you, there's so many themes there that I think... I mean, you, you're, you're, you're really brave for, for tackling the subject because I think it definitely needs to be tackled. I think the skepticism arises from a number of different uh, um, sources in medicine. A, you're trained to be a very, very skeptically minded kind of person throughout medical school. You're also trained in an almost military-like behavior to not step out of line. Yeah. And, and with reason, because there oh, are absolutely. some erroneous medics and we have a history of people just doing whatever they want mm. without the bounds of evidence-based medicine that at least unified and made treatment um, you know, accessible to everyone and fair as well. But then, uh, like currently, I'm reading a, a book called *The Emperor of Maladies*, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is a biography of cancer. It's by Siddhartha Mukherjee, an incredible read. It's mm. quite weighty, and it's basically chronicling how we used to think of and treat cancer over the last couple of hundred years, if not beyond that, actually, because he talks about Byzantine and uh, all different types of areas. And it's absolutely fascinating wow. how dogmatic people were, even within the medical field. And how we always throw skepticism insults willy-nilly if it doesn't fit with our own theories or our own sort of belief system. Mm. And so I can understand why so many people have this knee-jerk skepticism. Me too. And it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And you should definitely speak to um, Jeffrey Rediger, who, who's studied... Uh, um, what, what he describes, what other people describe as miracles in medicine. Mm. We have spontaneous remission. And a lot of what you just talked about there, um, the the thoughts, uh, sending prayers, it's amazing just how many parallels across different stories spanning different conditions have the same sort of foundations. I I believed in healing myself or I ate this certain way or I concentrated on these sort of lifestyle practices or I cultivated gratitude. And I think it really does warrant attention. Yeah, definitely. It's one of the the reasons I'm writing on this. And I have to say, one part of me feels excited because I think it's subjects that people intuitively know there's something there. And I've taken the the scientific part of the the book very seriously. But I've also suggested to scientists and skeptics to lay off people that you just because you think you know more about the world and you're more intelligent than someone who maybe talks about a crystal for example you know have a wee bit more compassion and understand that we're all coming from the same place we're just trying to make a difference it doesn't matter you know I'm I'm suggesting in the book that we be a bit kinder to each other and that's Mm. the best way to go forward but I have to say another part of me feels really nervous about writing this book because 
I, I've built up a lot of credibility over the years because I'm writing about important things and I back up everything with science. But I'm now venturing into some subjects that are met with more scepticism. Maybe where I was 20 years ago when I first started to write on the mind-body connection, it was people were very sceptical and I did get a bit of criticism from former colleagues back at that time. Mm. You know, I remember being, being forwarded an email by a friend that was circulating around people I knew who were laughing at me for having left AstraZeneca and be in this thing, writing, but try to write about the mind-body connection and thought this was hilarious. Poor guy, you know, mm. what a downfall for what was originally a, such a talented scientist. What a great downfall to be into this woo-woo stuff of the mind and all that. Uh, and so I feel like I'm going back to a place that I was in that I found very uncomfortable. And it was scary because I was struggling with my self-esteem. And it was scary, the insults that you got back then and and the attacks sometimes from aggress people who are aggressively sceptical, even when the scepticism, again, is, is unfounded. Mm. Uh, but I feel like I'm venturing into the same territory again. I have to say, I feel scared a wee bit. And it, again, mm. it's, it's, it, maybe it's another layer of self-esteem I have to work on because I, I have been, you know, people do take what I say seriously and I have built up a good reputation in the mainstream and here I'm broaching subjects that more people are sceptical about. And I feel a wee bit worried that I lose some of my credibility, even though I've been very scientific in the book, but, mm. but also that it'll be attacked by people who won't even read the book, who will just yes. take the subtitle or a bit of text in the back, which often happens. And, and I, I don't know... If my self-esteem has developed enough since I started working on it, that I'll be able to handle that if it arises. And I'm just, be, you know, because we've been having this podcast conversation, I feel it's important to be honest here. And, yeah. and that's my honest position as I flip between feeling excited about it to feeling very scared and wonder if, if I'll feel fragile given the possible reception among people who won't, probably won't even read the book or will just take something out of it, misrepresent a chapter and, and laugh at it. And, yeah. and I, some parts of me are not quite healed yet and still feel fragile a lot of the time. People just don't see that side. But a lot of parts of me do feel fragile sometimes and, and mm. I feel a wee bit honestly nervous about the book. And I've never been nervous about a book for more than a decade because I've mm. always been in subjects that are more mainstream, like kindness and self-esteem, mind-body connection. Even my book, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, is very, very mainstream. Everything's backed up with science. Mm. Even though this book is too, I'm broaching into subjects that people are naturally more skeptical about. So being honest, I'm excited sometimes and fragile at other times about it. And I, I don't know how I'm, going to, how I'm going to be when the book comes out next year. <laughs> I mean, it's. I'm so glad you talked about this because I don't think people in the science world, like such as ourselves, talk about this enough. Yeah. And I was I was met with a ton of skepticism last year when my my last book, Eat to Be Illness, came out, and I was attacked by former colleagues mm -hmm. as well, and they hadn't even read the book. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, just like you know, just just like, like itself, just yeah. the title, just the subtext, whatever. It's just or just how it's represented in the media, or whatever. Um, and I think 
I mean, it's really authentic that you're even, you know, admitting to yourself, let alone on the pod and everyone listening, that it's nerve-wracking. But I think that's almost like that negative energy that's always going to be converted into something positive mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I, I, it's almost like a really exciting time for you just to flip it on its head because you are almost like pushing your own boundaries yeah. and you're forcing yourself to be as authentic as possible yeah. because ultimately this is what you believe in and this yeah. is what I believe in as well. And it's about being and we almost like we almost like need people like like you to put the homework in to to study it to within an inch of its life and and to present it in a format that everyone can actually understand and it will help people as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it's important to be authentic and my natural growth takes me into the spiritual as what we normally think of as the spiritual aspects of life. And that's who I am. It's who I've always been. I've just not given as much attention to that side of me in writing and speaking for the last few years. And and I, I can't help it anymore. I can't suppress it. It's just who I am and it's it's coming out of me and it's, it's an it's a area I have to move into more for me. And, mm. and I always feel balanced. You see, I always need to find this balance. As that side of me is growing, I'm also pushing out into the heavy duty mathematics and physics. It's almost as one side expands, another side expands, so that I always find myself balanced, if that makes yeah. sense. I'm never too much spiritual or too much science. I always find a balance somewhere. And so whenever one side expands, the other side goes with it, if that makes sense. Why I think on a... If you think of it, that analogy, the the mathematics and physics I'm going into is is finding its balance with the expansion and spiritual aspects of myself. So I feel like in in honouring my growth, it's way this book is way out of my comfort zone, uh, but I have to do it because sometimes the greatest gains in self esteem lie just at the edge of your comfort zone, and I'm a work in progress, like I think everyone is. I, I, you know, self-esteem, you get to a point, but there's never an end point. It's like you said earlier mm. about learning and you're never an expert. You're always something mm. new. So there's always new growth. And I feel now I'm at a point where the next level of growth is just outside my comfort zone. And mm. so I have to do this for me. And even if it is met with skepticism and attack, if that does happen, uh, I have to learn to, to stand up for myself and I have to learn to deal with that better than maybe I have in, in the past. So, so on an underlying level, that's why I have, to, I have to do this book for me. Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, up until that time, I'm, I imagine you're just going to be working on building that foundation of inner self-esteem that keeps, yeah. it, keeps yourself Absolutely. rock hard. Yeah. Working on it now, actually. <laughs> <In> fact, <laughs> pa- partly talking about one of the tools that I learned about building self-esteem is allowing yourself to feel vulnerable, mm. but deciding that people's perception of you might even sound like you're weak or you don't know what you're talking about, that that doesn't matter so much as how you feel about yourself. And it doesn't matter so much as the fact that you had the courage to say it anyway. And so part yeah. of me being honest now is v- being embracing your own vulnerability and not being afraid to do it is a massive declaration of self-esteem to yourself. That even though people might be judgmental, I'm going to do it anyway, because this is who I yeah. am. And so I am practicing self-esteem right now, 
yeah. by, in, in part of this conversation. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I really enjoyed this part of our conversation, <laughs> to be honest, David. Yeah. I feel like giving you a big hug right now. Yeah, me too. Well, <laughs> hugging you back, virtually hugging you back right now. <laughs> we could sense yeah, it. Yeah. And it, it's, it's weird because um, there's so many parallels to our story because my, so my mum was ill when I was younger um, and she went on her own sort of lifestyle medicine journey. Um, she she was very analytical about everything she did. She improved the lifestyle and her diet and everything, but she also would have affirmations. Mm. She really honed her, her mind and her mental energy to, to focus on overcoming her condition, which is idiopathic anaphylaxis, a serious, serious condition. Mm. Um, and that kind of inspired me to go into medicine and then during medicine, completely forgot why I was in the first place. Was very, very skeptical. And then I had my own health issues when I came out, and I was a junior doctor. Um, and I was, I had a atrial fibrillation, cardiac uh, cardiac issue, where my heart would beat, you know, two hundred beats plus per minute irregularly, two to three times a week. And I was going to have the ablation, which is the conventional route. And my mum was the one was like, "No, you need to focus on lifestyle and diet." And I was like you know what you're talking about <laughs> this is you know woo woo stuff you can't mental health your way out of this stuff uh, uh, like mindset your way out of this stuff um but i appeased her and that's when i became you know a convert because i overcame my own mm. condition terrible uh, you know it's an anecdote and it's not something that i i recommend that everyone just do without you know the blessing of the cardiologist which is what i had mm. um but it, it certainly put me on my path towards this and i think it, in very much the same way as yourself although i feel like i'm i'm further back on my own journey um you know it's just pushing yourself forward and always trying to grow and expand and enjoy you know the ride and practice kindness and compassion as much as possible along the way Mm, well said (laughs) i could listen to you all day I really hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, you can find my guest at drdavidhamilton.com. The show notes are all on the doctorskitchen.com forward slash podcasts. And if there are a few tips that I would suggest that, uh, well, I'm definitely going to be doing them myself, but if you wanted to try them, it's finding a champion posture and practicing that one to two minutes a day it sounds a bit silly but i think from david's anecdotal experience as well as the research behind it i I really am going to put that into practice visualization is actually something i've been trying to do more often over the last couple of years and actually taking time to visualize exactly what a good day looks like what a good reaction looks like or even what your life plans out to be like over the next five or ten years and what you actually want to achieve and as always meditation breath work or just trying to find an exercise that helps you cultivate inner stillness in today's busy modern world i'm also going to put uh, some of the links to the books that we talked about uh, on the show notes thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast remember to subscribe give this a five star rating if you enjoyed it and i'll see you here next week
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.